What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Welcome to episode 138 of the Lynchville Leader Podcast, where we sit down with some of America's greatest leaders and find out how they have learned to lead with their faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike, and it is my honor to be on this leadership journey with you as we're all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the spaces and the places that God has put us. I tell you what, I believe within every person, there's a purpose. There's a race, the writer of Hebrews tells us, marked out for us. Today, we get to sit down with an amazing guest. He's a speaker, he's an author, he's a pastor, he's a professor, Mr. Dominic Doan. And Dominic unpacks some truth in his newest book, Your Longing Has a Name, coming alive to the story you were made for. I tell you, I don't know where you are in your journey as a leader, but We all have parts of us we don't even know how to unpack. Dominic helps us unpack those parts. This is going to be a blessing to your soul. So I don't know where you're at today. I don't know how you're tuning in today, but I want you to pull up a chair, pull out something to write with, and listen in to my conversation with the amazing leader, Dominic Doan. Well, Dominic, thank you so much for being a guest on Lynch with a Leader. It is an honor to have you, buddy. I feel the same way. Thank you so much yeah, for this opportunity. Well, I love your story. You were born in England, moved mm-hmm. to California, and really in California, a lot of things began to come together. Your parents found a faith after mm-hmm. not having one. What mm-hmm. was that journey like watching them come to faith in Christ? And, and what were some of the evolutions of that journey? It was like a spiritual whiplash. So as you mentioned, I was born, I was born in Oxford, England. Uh, you'd never guess it based on the accent, although I still say the word tomato. That's the one word that I refuse to relinquish. Um, but yeah, at the age of eight, we moved to Southern California. And growing up, my family was not in any respect followers of Jesus. Uh, there was a lot of brokenness in our family. My, my dad at that time was an alcoholic. Um, at one point my parents separated, my dad was living in his car in San Diego and caught up in drugs and that whole lifestyle. And God just dramatically got a hold of our family. One day, my mom came to know Christ. She then has sent my sister and I off to a Christian camp where I heard the gospel for the very first time. And every single night we just started praying for my dad. I, I'll never forget this about my mom, just the amount of forgiveness and love in her heart. For my dad, every single night, my mom, my sister, and I would literally get on our knees and we'd intercede, we'd pray for a miracle. We pray that God would get a hold of my dad's life. And one night he came over and God had just been doing something in his heart. He had tears in his eyes and he sat on the back porch of our house and gave his life to Jesus. Mm. And it was one of those radical turnarounds where immediately my parents got back together. They they tore up the divorce papers where they were in the process of divorcing, tore them up. 
and uh, just started following Jesus together. And it was like a spiritual whiplash. I go from an environment where there's a lot of brokenness and parties and my dad's an alcoholic and kind of crazy atmosphere to now we're going to church. And a few years later, my dad became a pastor and uh, to this day serving the Lord. So um, it was one of those radical things where I just saw the power, the beautiful redemption that only Jesus can bring in, the healing that he can bring to a family that was so far away. So that began my spiritual faith journey, middle school and high school was a follower of Jesus. Then you go off to college. What what did your faith do while you were off in college? How did that how did that whiplash that you yeah. it's a great way to describe it? How did that whiplash play into your collegiate years? Yeah, well, that's a that's an interesting question because I kind of did things uh, in reverse. Mm-hmm. So typically, you go to high school, then you go off to college, and you know you you begin your career. I God just kind of launched me right into ministry, mm-hmm. um, and I ended up doing university later. Uh, kind of in my late 20s and and 30s. Um, Yeah, so as soon as I finished high school, I went on the mission field. I spent a year in Mexico uh, working at an orphanage there for for disabled orphans and just serving them. And really, that was where I think I learned the most about Mm -hmm. what true ministry looks like. It was one of the most beautiful, formative years of my life. I went from there to a country called Vanuatu, which is in the South Pacific. And Many people haven't heard of Vanuatu. It's a pretty small country. It's an island nation in the middle of the South Pacific, one of the most diverse linguistic cultures. Um, they also speak this language called Bislama there. And so very quickly, I had to learn how to speak Bislama and teach the Bible in Bislama, oh, which actually, let me give you a little, little taste of Bislama. So um, it's kind of like a, a very simple language where you have a little bit of French, a little bit of English, a little bit of pidgin in it. Um, so the word slingshot, which they use to, to kill things, that's how we ate. <laughs> uh, there's a Walmart there, a Costco. Um, so the word slingshot in Bislama is elastic, long, shoot em pigeon. Um, <laughs> or or the, word, the word piano, this is my favorite word, is Hemi one big fella box where he got white teeth blong him. Moe got black teeth blong him. Mo suppose you kill him teeth blong him. Hemi sing out long you. That's the word piano. So you can imagine I'm I'm teaching the book of Romans in the middle of the jungle, no electricity, no running water, super simple. And I come across the word propitiation, like how am I going to teach this in Bizlama? But it was an incredible experience. Three years there, mm. just pouring my heart out, learning a ton. And then from there, got married and yeah, we, we ended up going to a lot of places, Europe for a year, where I was a teacher for Sony and Panasonic. Uh, we went to Hawaii for eight years, was where I was a pastor. And then more recently in Portland, Oregon, for almost a decade, where I was a lead mm-hmm. pastor. And now we're here in Colorado Springs. That is a, that's an amazing journey. That is an amazing journey. And it was <laughs> and a few places in between. I yeah, just a few places, just a few places. And, and I'm sure what God began to carve in your life in the jungle. And I'd love to ask you about that because that's such a unique experience. What did you learn about God mm. there? You could not mm. have learned in the States. Oh, my goodness. I learned the absolute necessity for our souls in order for our souls to flourish, we need to be connected to the presence of God. And for me, those years in Vanuatu were some of the most formative because 
you know, every day, at, at, like clockwork at four o'clock, I'd finish all the teaching and studying and prep for the next day and the, the practical work we had to do around this campus that we were in in the jungle. And I just take a little cup of coffee and go for a walk through the jungle and just spend time seeking the Lord, waiting on the Lord. And some days it was really beautiful mm. and God's just downloading information into my soul. At other times it was more silent and still, but those for me were the key moments mm. because it's in the presence of God that our, our soul can come alive. Of course, there's so much I learned culturally and just the, the, the humility we need when we engage in different cultures and learn from different cultures. Um, there, there's a lot that God showed me about my own life and how, you know, it's often in those seasons that are challenging. There was a, so many challenges there, um, stripped of all the comforts of home. And, you know, you're kind of lonely, uh, yeah. not knowing the, the culture and the language very well. And yet in those times, I think God does his deepest work when we're often removed from everything. Uh, and when we step into the quiet place, the God's spirit has space to speak to us. I love that. And, you know, you've spoken pretty openly about you even have gone through those wrestling and doubt years that, mm -hmm. and, and I love your approach to that. And I love your approach that, you know, God doesn't, God doesn't look down on us because of our doubts. In fact, he walks mm -hmm. with us through those doubts. And you went through that period of deconstructing your faith and mm -hmm. reconstructing your yep. faith. Talk a little bit yeah. about that, because I think every leader finds themselves in those moments. Mm -hmm. They know that they know, but they mm -hmm. wonder what they don't know. What, what would you say to yeah. that? You know, <laughs> there was a lot in, in growing up, um, that I had not yet fully processed, whether it was the, the pain and the, the brokenness that was in my own family, things I've witnessed and seen. Uh, as a pastor, you know this, you walk with people through their pain and you witness a lot, a lot of anguish. And that can be disturbing when you, when you stop to process it and think, why is there pain? Why is there brokenness in the world? And then there's the intellectual, philo uh, theological, philosophical side of things. And so I have always kind of had this pr propensity, this proclivity towards wanting to ask questions and examine. And, and you know, I'm, I'm a curious person. And even in those years of ministry, I remember there were all these latent questions in me that I hadn't fully resolved or even looked into. And part of it was, you know, I'm an introvert and introverts tend to kind of push things down. Mm. Uh, other part of it was a theology of doubt, which I had that I, I wrongly felt that doubt was always a sin. And so if there were questions, then I needed to suppress them. I needed to act like they weren't there. But there was a season, you're right, in my life. And I talk about this in my first book. Um, where we moved up back to Oxford, England. And this is when I'm doing my master's degree. And it was during that time where I said, you know, this is going to be a season where intentionally I'm going to examine those parts of my faith that I've had a hard time with, mm. things that I'm struggling with, I'm, things I need to re-examine. And I tell you, it was a difficult season. Uh, doubt can be extremely disorienting. Um, I think of Psalm 73, where Asaph, he says, truly God is good. But then he writes in the very next verse, but as for me, my feet almost slipped. And he mm -hmm. begins to describe a season of doubt in his life. And, you know, I, when I read that verse, I think of a rock climber 
think of a time actually uh, when I went rock climbing. I went once, and once was enough for me. <laughs> um, and I was about 100 feet up, and at one point, my foot slipped. And fortunately, I'm, I'm tied in, but it's still terrifying. My, my whole body swung out. And you know that feeling of disorientation and dizziness as your stomach goes into your mouth and you're just like, oh my gosh, am I going to fall here? And doubt can feel that way. Deconstruction can feel that way as you're beginning to reexamine and rethink and process uh, various things that have been precious to you or things you had taken on board in your upbringing or absorbed from culture or your church. But it was also one of the most beautiful times in my spiritual journey because like Jacob, when he wrestled with God, I believe that's how our names are changed. You know, we may walk away with a limp because wrestling's hard work, um, but our relationship with God becomes more gritty and vulnerable than ever before. And so, yeah, I, I talk about that very openly in my first book, what that was like. And I shared that because there are so many people, as you alluded to, who right now are in seasons of doubt. Uh, you go on social media, uh, TikTok or Instagram, and you look up hashtag deconstruction, and we're seeing a tsunami of people, particularly young people, who are leaving the faith, deconstructing their faith, leaving the church, wanting nothing to do with God, faith, Jesus, Bible. And it's it's a phenomenon. In fact, the New York Times, they, they re recently reported on this, and they said that we're witnessing a surge of secularism. In fact, mm -hmm. they, they did a whole article. Uh, they call it exvangelicals, the rise of exvangelicals in our country. And so I, I wrote that first book, A, to share out of my own journey, what it was like for me to deconstruct and reconstruct, but also to help people who are in that space or parents who are trying to help their kids through that space or roommates who are trying to help their friends. How do we process times of doubt? What is doubt? What does the Bible say about it? And practically, how can we move towards a flourishing faith? That's fantastic. And we'll put a link to that book in the show notes because it is so good. And you made a comment, and then we're going to dive into your new book, which is fantastic. You made a comment that might be one of my favorite comments I've ever heard. I heard it in an interview. You said mystery is the lifeblood of intimacy. That is, I think there's there's a part of all of us, we want all the answers to God. And the mm -hmm. reality is, just as you allude to with your spouse, as well as you know that my wife and I have been married 30 years, there's still a mystery to who she yeah. is, right? Unpack right. that Unpack that mystery is the lifeblood of intimacy when it comes to who God is and who we are. Yeah, so that line came out of the first chapter of the first book mm. where I'm kind of re-examining a theology of doubt. You know, often, and this was the case with me, my theology of doubt came from Genesis 3, where Satan uses doubt in a very destructive way in Eve's life and Adam's life by whispering lies in her ear, did God really say? And it's true, doubt can be very destructive, and the enemy can use doubt. However, our theology of doubt shouldn't just come from Genesis 3. We need to go back further to Genesis 1. And what we see in Genesis 1 is God creates a world of limitation. So you have an infinite God who creates a finite world, a God who isn't constrained with the boundaries of space and time, but he makes a world that is constrained with the boundaries of space and time. He makes us humans who have boundaries and limitations and things we don't know. I mean, we still need Google to close the gaps, right? 
And I, I make the point in that chapter, and part of this comes from Augustine and the way he thought about this, is that God places us in this world with limitations while at the same time making us curious what lies outside those limitations because he wants us to grow. He wants us to ask mm, questions. He wants us to explore. It's why Jesus led with questions over 300 times. That's how he formed the life, the spiritual journey of his disciples, 300 questions. And then he invited them to ask questions of him. It's why you see in the book of Deuteronomy, where God says, as you're creating this culture called Israel, I want your kids to ask questions. And this is what they're to, you're to say to them when they do engage you with questions. That's why Israel wrestled, Jacob wrestled with God and was called right. Israel. We're to be a wrestling people. We're to be an inquisitive, curious people. And that kind of uh, desire to learn and grow is what fuels relationship. Mm. So this is where we get into that line. Mystery is the lifeblood of intimacy. I, I make the point that maybe God created the world this way and designed us with this desire to explore because it's the pursuit of love yeah. that leads to the discovery of love. Mm. It's because there are questions that are aching to be asked. It's because there are, you know, journeys that are waiting for us to explore that we get to learn and grow and fall in love with God. And like any relationship, it takes a certain amount of mystery to kind of keep the relationship alive. You know, I talk about how, you know, we, we've been married uh, coming up 22 years now. And so just behind you, but still there are things I'm learning yep. about my spouse. Uh, moments she surprises me or she shares a story with me I didn't know, or I see how she navigates a, a challenging season. Like, oh, wow, I... I'm still learning and discovering mm. and pursuing and getting to know you and asking questions. And because there's a certain amount of mystery there, because there's still these questions that are aching to be asked, that the relationship feels alive mm. and vibrant. Because if I knew everything there was to know about her, if I knew every single thought she had, if I knew every word she was going to say before she said it, if I knew exactly where she was at any given second, not only would that be kind of creepy, but no. it would hinder the, the progression of love. It's the pursuit. It's the quest. And it's because there are still things that are unknown that keeps us chasing after and discovering love. You know, and, and that really ties in so well to your new book, because you talk about in the book, you talk about how there's an incredible pursuit that God is on for us. And that mm. we, you know, we always think yeah. of our pursuit of God, but really so much of who God is, is he's in a pursuit of us. The That's new right. book's called Your Longing Has a Name. And mm. I think inside every person, there is that longing. How are we seeing that manifest now, really mm. more than ever? Yeah. You know, we, we, we live in this moment right now where, our souls are are struggling. Mm. Um, the last few years <laughs> has been incredibly disruptive, as you know, whether it's the pandemic, uh, the sting of grief and loss, trying to navigate work and church even via Zoom, <laughs> mm. social political tensions, global unrest, what's happening in Ukraine, inflation, economic anxiety, not to mention the immense emotional struggles mm. that so many people are, are wading through. And the stats that have come out, I'm sure you've seen these, 
over the last few months are absolutely devastating. 75% of Americans are overwhelmed by stress. 72% are exhausted. 68% feel defeated. 67% say they're lonely. 48, so 48%, half of all Americans say that they're hopeless. And so we live in this moment where there is a tremendous amount of ache and pain in people's souls. And what I do in this next book is I help to identify those pains, what, mm. what's happening in our soul, but then also engaging with the deeper question of, okay, when our soul is in that place, when we're striving and gasping for air, when it feels like we're not flourishing and thriving as God intended, what is really going on? Mm. And in the opening chapters, I talk about there's a deeper longing. When your soul is aching, when you feel exhausted, it's your soul's way of saying, I'm longing for something of substance and truth. And ultimately, what you're longing for is the presence of the Lord. You know, and you've got a lot, and we talked about this a little bit before we went on air, you've got a lot of hard-charging leaders that are all striving to be spiritual leaders, even yeah. as people who have a faith, what can we find ourselves trying to satisfy our souls with? What's pursuits, misled pursuits, but what are pursuits mm -hmm. you see people get on that you go, man, at the end of the day, it's not really what your soul is longing for. Mm. Well, I think there's so many, so many idols right now that we need to identify and deconstruct. Um, uh, we, we live in a culture that idolizes physicality while disregarding vigilance for the unseen self for the soul. Uh, we're, we struggle with fear. Uh, we're too busy <laughs> uh, to even slow down enough to identify and confront what's bruised inside. You know, one author, um, he said that the vast majority of us go to our graves without even knowing who we are. And so because we're so busy, because we're unwilling to really take time to do the difficult work of examining our soul, you know, Jesus said, what good does it profit you if you gain the whole world, but lose your soul? In the book of Proverbs, we're told to attend to our inner life because out of it, springs the wellspring of life. It is the source of life. And if we're not attending to our soul, if we're not being diligent to asking the Lord to search our heart, as David mm -hmm. prayed in the book of Psalms, then the brokenness that's in us will inevitably come out of us. You know, mm -hmm. when I, when I lived in Vanuatu and was teaching the Bible there, um, to, to get water, we had to uh, form our own well, but before we had a well, we had to catch it. So we had this tin roof and it rained a ton there because it was a tropical climate. The rain would hit the tin roof and then it would go down into this big rain catchment. And I remember a time there where everyone on campus was getting sick, literally everyone. And I got sick and we're, we're literally lining up out in front of the little outhouse in the jungle. Like, what is going on here? Is it something we ate? Is it just some bug that's going around? And after several days of this, and I should have thought of this much earlier, I thought, well, I should probably look at our rain catchment. And I <laughs> took a little ladder and I climbed up, I looked inside, and sure enough, floating inside the rain catchment was an abnormally large, swollen gecko that had, <laughs> it was like four times as 
his normal size. It gets bigger every time I tell the story, but it was, <laughs> it was huge. Just floating around pieces of gecko in, <laughs> in not to gross you out, but it was gecko soup essentially. And I realized that's why this mm. is why we're all sick. There's poison. There's something toxic in the well. And the same thing can happen in our life. Right. You know, Kierkegaard, he, the Danish philosopher, he, he talked about this, how sin grows every moment that we allow it to remain inside us. It's, mm. it's gecko soup, right? And, and how many times are our souls toxic, poisoned by culture, by the attacks of the enemy, by our own busyness, by sin, you, you name it. And we have to attend to the source. We have to identify the geckos that have gotten inside the well and invite the spirit of God to heal, to clean us up, to wash us from the inside, create in me a clean heart again, as David prayed. You are a pastor. You're a husband. You're a podcaster. You're an author. You're a professor. I mean, you, you wear a lot of hats in life. How do you do that, Dominic, on a daily basis, you know, where it's not, well, I wrote a book about it, but I've moved on from it. I know those are daily yeah. spiritual habits. How could you help some yeah. of the folks listening in today on how to keep the gecko out of that's a great illustration, <laughs> it, bad illustration when you experience a great illustration. Right. Now, how, how do you keep the geckos out of your well for you personally? Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, that question is essentially uh, the new book that I wrote because yeah. um, I don't do it well. I mean, we're all we're all struggling. We're all trying to figure things out. And what I share in the book is a, a season that we went through very recently, actually. And it was fueled by a lot of things, pastoring, uh, helping people navigate their own grief, dealing with our own grief, lo losing several family members. Mm -hmm. In a short span of time, my wife almost losing her life. Uh, I talk about that in the book. And that it, it was a time for us where we felt that, man, our souls are tired right now. Yeah. And that sent me on a quest of, okay, in the midst of wearing all these hats and dealing with all these things and trying to understand the presence of God in the midst of that, how can my soul be healthy? And it led me to this book where I talk about this, the health of the soul. I use the word flourishing, which is this beautiful, beautiful word that you see in a myriad ways from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, I came across a verse in Psalms where David prayed, may the Lord cause you to flourish. Mm. Or that prayer in 3 John that says, beloved, may your soul flourish and prosper. Or Jesus, when he said, when you believe in me, out of your innermost being will gush forth torrents of living water. Or Psalm 1, where it says we can be like the tree that's planted by the streams of water and everything we do flourishes. And, and as I'm examining these verses, I notice a dichotomy because I'm feeling exhausted. <laughs> My soul at that time was hurting. The souls of so many people I know are hurting. So how can I flourish? How can I experience what Jesus is promising me here? And so in the book, uh, I, I share how the Lord led me to this kind of obscure passage in 2 Peter that I think gives us a beautiful roadmap back to a healthy soul. It's 
the life of Peter, who he knew what it was like to be exhausted. He knew what it was like to have his soul fatigue. In fact, it led him to a place where he's standing at the enemy's fire. He even denied he knew Jesus. And yet the Lord tracked him down. As you mentioned, God pursues us. That's exactly what happened to Peter. Jesus stood at the shore right. and he called out to him. He said, friend, have you caught anything? Which is so interesting to me, because if my best friend had just betrayed me, I probably wouldn't be calling him friend. I'd be like, That's hey, right. loser or ex-disciple. <laughs> um, but Jesus said, friend, have you caught anything? And, and Peter realized it was the Lord and jumped in. He swam to shore. And, and then Jesus said, you know, feed my sheep. And what we see in the life of Peter is a man who was frazzled, exhausted, wearing too many hats, to be honest. And then God brought him to this place of flourishing once again. And as an old man, as he's sitting in a prison cell, which, by the way, this is an important point maybe we could talk about. But uh, he talks about what it means to flourish in the book mm. of Second Peter. And flourishing from a biblical perspective does not mean an easy life necessarily. Peter was in prison, and this is pushes get against the, the narrative of culture that tells us flourishing is about you be you and live your dreams and everything's great and cozy, right? Uh, Lego gospel, everything yep. is awesome. That, that's, not, that's not how the Bible describes flourishing at all. It's the presence of God, even in the midst of those hard times. Mm. And so as an old man in prison, he talks about how our souls can flourish. And he invites us to add these seven things to our faith, these gifts that God has given to us. And so what I do in the book is we walk through those seven things and we talk about how they can cause our soul to come alive again, mm -hmm. especially when we're fatigued and exhausted. Seven really simple practices, or I like to call them gifts because they're, they're not legalistic obligations, but gifts God gives us for the health of our soul. I will tell you this, if you are listening in, this is a book everybody needs to put on their shelf because not just put on their shelf, but really hide away in their heart because we all, no matter your occupation, no matter what titles at the beginning of your name, whether it's doctor or reverend or mom or dad or coach, everybody has those seasons and your, your breakdown of Simon Peter's life. My son and I were driving last night to a ball game. He's, he's the high school pastor at my church. And oh, cool. uh, we were, he's teaching on Simon Peter coming up and we were talking about this exact story and your principles you bring out of Simon Peter's life. God left us those stories for a reason. And he left us That's for right. these seasons, right? Uh, you made a statement, and I, and I want to unpack this, and we'll we'll begin to land the plane. You said in in an all throughout the New Testament, you see the word saint, and you say a saint is not someone who is good, but it's someone who experiences the goodness of God. Mm. Boy, mm -hmm. that is powerful. Why and where did that hit you from, Dominic? Mm. Well, I think, I think Peter's life, uh, Jesus looked at a man who had failed, who was weary, who was exhausted, and yet called him friend. And Peter experienced the redemptive grace of Jesus. And this is such an important point, because chances are, there are people listening to this right now who are in a place where you may feel weary. Your soul may be gasping for air. 
Uh, maybe you look at your life and you think, man, I've made some mistakes or gone down some wrong paths. And the enemy loves to get in our ear and cause us to feel shame. And, and this is one of the things I draw out in the book, that there's a difference between guilt and shame, right? Yeah. Guilt is that nagging sense, oh, I've done wrong. And God can actually use that to, to bring conviction and repentance. But shame is deeper. It's more insidious. Shame says, not just I did wrong, but I am wrong. Shame speaks into identity. And this is where the enemy is ripping off so many people right now. Because God speaks over us something different. God speaks over us, you're my son, you're my daughter, you're in the beloved, you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, you're forgiven, you're holy, you're pure, you're seated with me in the heavenly places. When we begin to understand our identity, who God sees us, who God calls us, God says, you are flourishing because you're in me. When we see that that's God's perspective, then our calling then is to simply live out what God says is already true about us. He calls us a saint, which is amazing to me. Right? It's crazy. Uh, we, we, yeah, Paul, he started his letters that way, to the saints of Ephesus or to the saints at Rome. Um, we're all saints, right? It's Saint Mike, Saint Dominic, if your name's yep. Bernard, Saint Bernard. Like we all <laughs> are all saints. And a saint, as you mentioned, is... It's not someone who's good necessarily, but they've experienced the goodness mm. of God and they've received that identity. Then once we know who we are, and there's a crisis of identity right yep. now, people really, really are struggling with who am I? What am I called to be? And society, of course, isn't helping as it's inverted so many different terms. Even language itself is being turned in on itself. And uh, people are confused, confused about their identity, their their sexuality, their gender, you know, the list goes on and on. And the deeper issue here is we've forgotten our identity as sons and daughters of God. Once we have that as our foundation, I, I believe this is one of the, and it's why I start the book actually this way. It is the foundation that helps our soul reconstruct, become healthy once again. You talk about, you know, real thriving is when you're a blessing to others. Mm -hmm. For all of us, the, you've you've written incredible books. You've pastored. You have led. You have a family. All, all the things that all the hats you wear. When Simon Peter looked up and Jesus from that shore, and I love how you brought this out. Jesus called him friend. Mm -hmm. There will be a day your eyes will lock eyes with the one that you've written about mm -hmm. and talked about and preached about and told others about when your eyes lock eyes with his eyes on the other side. And when this life is said and done, what do you hope he says to you about how your life blessed others? What would you say? Oh, that, that is such a beautiful question. Um, have we reflected the beauty and the image of Jesus to a lost and broken world? Have we been able to allow the light of Christ to shine through us into a dark world? That's our calling. Uh, our callings 
not to try and strive to become something we're not, but rather live out who God says we already are and to allow his beauty and grace uh, to bring beauty and grace to, to a world that's fragmented. Um, that would be my hope to live like Jesus, you know, to, to all when, when Jesus walked this earth, to all who felt unwanted, to all who felt burned by a religious system, to those who were abused by systems of power, Jesus gave the marginalized a place to belong. Mm. Religion condemns the broken, but Jesus made the broken his mission. Religion excluded the sinner, but Jesus invited the sinner to his table. Religion shames people for having dirty feet, but Jesus knelt down to wash them. Mm. And that's how I want to live my life. I want to be one who washes feet to help bring hope in a time where people's souls are hurting, where there's an ache, there's a longing, and yet, in the midst of everything that's going on, I believe that God's spirit is at work in, in new and beautiful ways. One author, he talked about how the gospel is really flourishing in the midst of the cracks of secularism, he called it. Just like a piece of concrete that begins to, to break apart yep. because something new is growing. And we look at the world right now, there's a lot to be discouraged by. You look at the deconstruction that's happening. You look at the health of many sectors of the American church. You look at the, the anguish and the languish of the soul. And yet, even in the midst of that, there, there's beautiful places where God is doing something new, where God's bringing healing, where his spirit is working. And that's my hope. That's why I wrote the book, because I, I want to help people find restoration. Like David prayed in Psalm 23, Lord, you're my shepherd. Bring me to the green pastures and the still waters. Lord, restore Amen. my soul. That is our calling to be wounded healers, to help restore the souls of those who are broken. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Wasn't that fun? You know, it's so funny when you encounter people like Dominic who just have a way to find the pulse of really what's going down in the engine room of our lives. And I tell you, when I got off the call with him, we did not know each other. But I just felt better about life after getting off the call. Oh, my goodness. So, so good. Well, our fun 2022 conversations continue next week when we sit down with Karen Hardage. Karen is another amazing leader who is making a difference in the world that she lives in. And I just love that all over the country, there's people like Dominic and Karen and Shannon Bream that are just getting it done. And Karen is just one of those people that just gets it done. And she, in her newest book, helps us see how our connectedness makes all the difference. It's going to be so good. So if you're listening in today, share this conversation, if you would, on your social media platforms. Take time to leave a rating and review so other people can find their way to us. And really, more than finding their way to us, they can find the purpose that they were created for in this world that we live in. Thanks again for joining in today. Go now. Live out the call that God's put on your life and be the leader that you were created to be. 
Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.